Just a couple of notes up front. This episode contains some curse words. If you're listening with small children, you may want to cover their ears. Also, the noises you hear in the background are the sounds of Philadelphia, the Kensington area of Philadelphia, where I conducted my interview with Ryan Cook. He's no longer with Greensgrove, but the farm carries on and is continuing on in the legacy of Mary, the original founder. And now, enjoy the episode. From AAC Studios, welcome to Scrappy, the podcast about small companies doing big things. I'm your host, Chris Stragus. This week, we celebrate Thanksgiving, traditionally a time of family and service and reflection, a day filled with food prepared by and shared with our loved ones. This week boasts the busiest travel days out of the entire year as a testament to the idea of us wanting to be with others, our personal community, our family village. These feelings, these activities, are rooted deeply within our nature, dating long before the first official Thanksgiving in 1863, or even the first U.S. traditions of the early 1600s. This idea of sharing food as a celebration of the communal experience goes back to the earliest humans. You might even say it's in our DNA. So to honor food and community and how intertwined those two things can be, this week we're going to visit Greensgrove, an urban farm in the Kensington area of Philadelphia. This little oasis lives in the heart of a socioeconomically challenged community, turning what once was a steel galvanizing factory into a factory for growth, both literally and figuratively. But it wasn't easy. It took the steely resolve of a person like Mary Seton Corboy. Mary built Greensgrove from the ground up and ran it until she passed in 2016. I spoke with her successor, Ryan Cook. My name is Ryan Cook. I'm the executive director of Greensgrove Philadelphia Project, aka Greensgrove. And we're sitting here in our beautiful greenhouse in Kensington in northeast Philadelphia. What I like about urban farming is that um, it's place, right? It's soil, it's direct connection to the earth. And especially in cities where that sometimes feel like they're changing all the time, farms can be literally rooted. They can root you in a place and in an experience um, that is different from everything around it. And so to me, that's the most important aspect of urban farming. It's, It's creating these places that feel different from everything else around them that people can use as an expression for all kinds of different interests that they have, whether it's art or culture or yes, cooking or food. There is this idea that urban farming is this new thing or something that's now exploding. But honestly, we had twice as many urban farms in Philadelphia 30, 40 years ago than we do now, but they just weren't known about because they mostly happened in black and brown communities, immigrant families that were just growing food because that was part of their their cultural tradition or they came up with those skills from the South or from other places around the world where the agrarian lifestyle was more common. And so, but they tended to be under the radar. What I like about Greensgrow is that um, we're constantly asking that question ourselves. We're constantly figuring out how does a farm, how does agriculture relate to how people live in cities and to the city environment, the built environment, the social environment, the health environment? How is farming relevant as we believe it is 
to how people go about the rest of their daily lives here, living in a metropolis, in a place where maybe food growing is unexpected or maybe not something you would naturally think of first and foremost. So um, to me, it's, it's about green space and it's about connecting people to what is latent in our DNA. When you see the ripe red of a tomato in a green vine, your eyes are drawn to it. There's something that's, that's primal and um, I think really important to how we interface with the natural world and farms Food is a common denominator, something that we all share, and it's a, a really easy touch point for people from all kinds of different backgrounds, all kinds of different skill sets to, to find commonality and share something that's meaningful and important to them. You know, we're, you know, talked a lot about as a pioneering urban farm, but really we're carrying on this torch. We're doing it a little different in a more organized way, perhaps. The origin story of Greensgrow isn't really about being a farm. It's so much more. It's about common purpose and defining and manifesting something out of nothing, and projecting that mission, those ideals, onto the entire neighborhood they call home, so that everyone benefits. Greensgrove started with this idea of, can we not only grow food in a city, right? Is this something that is possible for those that hadn't seen it, that hadn't experienced in the way that others had? But also, can we turn it into a triple bottom line enterprise? Can we take care of, of creating jobs? Can we create and environmental impact that is a net positive for the city. So I think that triple bottom line approach is still what sets Greensboro apart, that it's not just about um, creating profit, it's not just about growing food, it's all those things together and creating a multi-dimensional um, impact into these neighborhoods that we serve. You know, I'll be the first to say that urban agriculture isn't about feeding people, right? It's about how can we be a linchpin? How can we connect people to the systems of food, to the, to the agricultural economy that does sustain us and sustain our cities? And, um, and part of that is just having conversations, but giving them access in a different way. And so I like to say that we have the opposite program, problem of a lot of farmers. We have the market. We're sitting here in the hottest neighborhood in America. You're right outside our doors. We have people looking for food we don't have as farms, but Philadelphia has the, or Pennsylvania has the fourth most productive agricultural land in the country. So people think about Lancaster County, maybe or South Jersey and Jersey tomatoes, but they don't think about like how huge the agricultural industry is in this, in this state. And, um, but it's also very threatened. We're losing, I think it's 50,000 family farms a year. Like the, the agriculture industry in the country is, is really threatened and that's here too with development pressures and everything else. And so how can we really make sure that we're sustaining our access to fresh food um, in these counties around Philadelphia, instead of just saying, oh, urban agriculture is going to solve the problem. It's bullshit. It's never going to happen. We're going to need people growing tomatoes in South Jersey. We're going to need the Amish in Lancaster County growing food. And um, if we can ease the burden on them, if we can find the markets for them, instead of having them sit on a street corner every Sunday morning, then we can help them grow and sustain themselves and be better, more resilient and better sustained um, in the face of all the other pressures they face being farmers, which is the hardest job in America. I've been in Philly. 20 years now and um, land is precious and you, when you have a whole city block I feel a tremendous responsibility to make sure that that city block feels like everyone owns a piece of it right <laughs> that it's not just ours there's some interesting studies being done now about how community gardens improve home values and can actually improve mental health right so there's all these benefits that you can get from green space but you can't you can't interact with it you can't access it right and so um, because you know there's no there's no staff there's no people there to have those conversations. So what I like about Greensboro is that our gates are open as many days a week as we can afford, <laughs> um, but there's someone here to talk to all the time, and that's what people really love. And 
and that allows us to listen. And so, again, when we're at our best, when we're not overextended and we can take that time, we can have conversations with 20,000 people and really get a pulse for what's going on and then find those ways that we can engage with that. And that's, that's really the secret of success. Most people familiar with Kensington have a mental image of the neighborhood. Poverty, crime, trash. It's an area hit hard by dynamic change in the last 50 years. But in 1997, Mary and her original co-founder, Tom Saraduck, saw something very different. Potential. You can go a block away and there's still another plant uh, around, but it's a giant steel building, you know, clad in sheet metal, where they would have dipping tanks. They would take raw steel and or raw iron and dip it in heavy metals to coat it with a protective galvanizing layer and, um, and then ship it out to make fence poles or whatever else. Um, and uh, when that business folded, then a construction company kind of bought it and was operating here, but they didn't do anything to deal with the giant tubs of heavy metals or anything else that was left behind and the building that was coated in all kinds of particulates and everything else. And this is before, I think, well, definitely Kensington was not on anyone's radar, um, but definitely, I think, um, you know, these point sources of examination didn't have the funding or the priority or the, really the awareness of the general public about how dangerous these people were. And I talked to neighbors around who would come swimming in those pits, you know, when they would fill up with rainwater and like, and so this, this neighborhood, being this industrial neighborhood, had a lot of different po uh, parcels like this that were, again, actively poisoning this community. They tell stories about how the sirens would go off and everyone have to close their windows. They, they would be just like dust, like covering their cars and the windowsills and everything else um, from factories like this, not just this one, but everything else like that, right? So the, the, the stories here and the legacy here is unimaginable in a lot of ways. Um, and so the neighborhood actually rallied to um, clean up this site. The, the thought was to make to be uh, senior housing. Um, there was an original like protest, people wearing gas masks, old ladies walking down the street, you know, really saying, you know, do something about this in the, in the 80s and 90s. Um, and the EPA was persuaded to come in and declare it a brownfield site, and they cleaned it up. So it was a you know sort of a um, their um, I forget exactly what they called it. Um, but they came, they took out the top three feet of soil, did the sonar imaging, making sure there wasn't anything buried that was suspicious. They dug out some big tanks um, and then filled it with clean dirt and, um, and, and capped it, put a penetration barrier and everything else. Uh, but then the market crashed and the, the funding for the housing went away and so then it just was sitting. So then you had, you know, it wasn't, hopefully it was safer, but it still was Again, an entire city block of nothing, right? And you think about the, the, what that does to a community to have, to feel forgotten, to feel like no one cares that you can just have a, a trashy parking lot in the middle of your neighborhood and what does that mean, um, I think is damaging and emotionally damaging in lots of different ways. And so um, it sat for another couple of years until Mary approached um, the local community development corporation that I think she had $10,000 originally to start the place. and and build it, brought in all the trays and, um, and just started growing food. And um, at that time, again, no one cared about Philadelphia. No one definitely cared about Kensington. And so there was um, very little risk involved and it paid off. I started in 2006, so Greensboro was still doing a lot of hydroponic lettuce and still incorporating a lot of the original elements. And it was still, it was a very small team. When I started, there was only four of us. Uh, it was a very different time, but I think, <laughs> knowing Mary, I, I think it 
I can imagine her just, she was a chef, so she was working in these restaurants and seeing how food was being transported all across the country and all across the world and, you know, getting this, you know, romaine lettuce or iceberg lettuce more likely, you know, from California. And I can just imagine being like, this is stupid. You know, this is, this is you know, idiotic that we're transporting this lettuce all across the country and it tastes like shit. So can we do something better? Can we actually like elevate food? She was a foodie, you know, before that term existed. And so someone that really cared about quality product and experience around food, we can do this with a greater impact than just making a business. We can do this with something that is going to actually make the city better and hopefully create ideas that other people can use to make the whole world a better place. I mean, I have a picture of her in my office of just kind of looking skeptically at me, you know, so always like, you know, keeping that, that uh, contrarian voice around. Um, you know, I think we worked well together because we both tend to have an irreverence for um, doing things just because that's the way it's been done before. Um, but um, but I, it's also the secret of Green's Girl's success is, you know, she really instilled a culture in this organization of being unafraid of change, of being unafraid to try something new, and, um, and really going for it. She grew up around in Maryland. She, um, there's stories of her, you know, kind of being a rabble rouser in Catholic school, you know, growing up, standing on tables, leading, you know, many rebellions. So I think, you know, she was a natural born leader, someone that people just gravitated to and you know, wanted to be around and wanted to follow. And I think that's, you know, also what, what really allowed Greensboro to grow and flourish is people wanted to be a part of it and people wanted to be around her and that was an important thing and you know she also was crass and irreverent and um, could also be abrasive and you know kind of you know didn't give a damn a lot of times but um, she she was unafraid and you know worked incredibly hard was always you know, sacrificing herself to to make this place work and make this place run, and I think led by example of someone who is really dedicated to an idea and willing to you know put it all on the table to make make it happen. And uh, she she was also a cancer survivor, so a lot, most of her time here at Greensboro was either going through treatment and diagnosis and everything else with her cancer, and then ultimately all the complications that came from that treatment that ended up killing her. Um, Going through that while also carrying this place on her back was a superhuman feat, for sure. Even after she had her cancer and they removed most of her intestine and she, the doctors told her she would never eat real food again, you know, I think it was two weeks later she was eating a hamburger just because she loved the experience of eating food and so, you know, proved them all wrong and just, you know, said, no, if I'm going to live, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to eat food. And so, um, but, uh, you know, as she got sick and she would have times where she couldn't physically just eat it, she would still feed people and still cook and still, you know, I think really um, appreciated and wanted to share what I was saying earlier, just that, that very hu basic human need to to eat and respect food and have it be a part of our culture and our daily you know, rhythm and everything else. And so that was an important part of what she created Greensboro to do, was find new ways for food to engage with people. So when she was diagnosed, I mean, she kept a lot of that struggle private. It was one of the things that um, was also frustrating, and, um, but admirable about her is that you know she really did insulate the staff from the tremendous personal pain and suffering that she was going through. Looking back now, I'm realizing how much effort she had to put in to make that happen, and it's, it's awe-inspiring. I asked Ryan about his relationship with Mary. 
As he shared the stories, I got the impression that Mary saw something in him, the kind of traits that resonated deeply with her. It seemed as though she was probably grooming him for the role long before he knew it. Eventually, as her health deteriorated, she felt he was ready for the ask. So she approached him about being her successor. I, I laughed in her face and I had to go back and apologize later because I didn't, at the time, it didn't quite sink in like how important that question that was for her. Even after she passed, I, um, it wasn't on my radar. It wasn't, I was like, okay, I'll, I'll be here. I'll help with the transition. We get the right person and figure it out. Then I'll move on. You know, even though she had been sick for a long time, she died suddenly and didn't really ever leave things in the place where someone else could pick it up very easily. I realized pretty quickly that there was an important role I could play to help maintain and not let this place just disappear. I'll jump in, we'll see what happens. And so, you know, it's two years on. I'm proud I did it, I'm glad I did it. This, it's been an incredibly hard two years and an incredibly important learning experience for me. And, um, but I'm really proud of where we've gotten we've, and, um, and really optimistic about the future. One of the reasons I love this story was that it seemed to be the raw manifestation of our central idea of scrappy. Their model wasn't so much about planning for the future, but more about getting an idea, trying it, evaluating it, and then adapting where needed. When she started the CSA is because she had a conversation with a person outside of a restaurant when she was delivering lettuce and they were just talking about how they hated going to the grocery store and picking out everything, right? And so like, she's like, all right, well, I can create a box of food that I like and maybe someone else will like it, right? So, you know, I think she was, she was a true entrepreneur in the, in the spirit of, of being able to look around at the world and see where there's an unmet need and then find some, some, a way to meet that. And so all the different ways we've grown, um, we grew to get to that point. Um, didn't follow a plan or a script. There was never a strategic plan, you know, or anything like that. It was, it was just day, day to day conversations and, and trying new things and being unafraid to just like, hey, we'll throw this box together of food, we'll see who likes it. And then all of a sudden that we have a thousand members coming every week to get food. And so um, it was a, um, a true accountability again to the people looking around, to the people in this community, the people that were coming here and saying, what are you looking for? What can we meet? How can this farm serve your interests and in what you're trying to do? You know, Greensgrove's never really invested in itself. And I think it was a point of pride that Mary would carry and that I would carry is that, you know, we can do things on the cheap, right? So we built our, com our community kitchen um, down the street, um, the first shared use kitchen in the city of Philadelphia. And you know, we built it for $60,000 that we had a shrimp boil and raised some money. It's definitely DIY and people love that aesthetic about it. But I also think it was a liability that we never really to actually throw money behind an idea that was a good one and maybe capitalize on it, sustain it for something that could um, really carry it forward and help us to, well, as I said, sustain it into the long term. And I think that's what Mary always was trying to find was, how can I actually run a successful business that does good in the world? But right now we have six different businesses that are all almost profitable, but that still leaves a gap in each one. And that could be really exhausting. And, and, um, and you know, if you're not investing in yourself and not investing in equipment, you know, those costs eat up too, and they eat up morale, they eat up time, they eat up all these other things. So um, I think that's something that Green Store is always, you know, thinking about and questioning about itself is how do you, how do you hold true this idea of you can start small and start organic and be nimble in that way, but also really invest when it's time to invest to make sure that something is running smoothly and running well so that you can actually do something that can be replicated or can be um, sustainable long term. Again, it's something that we're still questioning all the time is, is um, not only how can we provide a good experience and um, you know, relationships and, and um, 
value to our neighbors and our customers and everything else, but how do we take care of the people here? How do we take care of our employees and make sure that, um, that we're a, a leader in that arena as well? And that's definitely been a priority of mine. But you have to be able to let it go. And I think you know, we, had a th we had an unofficial three-year rule in Greensboro that you try something, if in three years it doesn't find a way to sustain itself, then it's got to go. One example of this is that we just made the decision to end our farm share program, which was one of our signature programs, 30% of our budget. Um, and this is the, the, the CSA, the original CSA. We changed the name of farm share a couple years ago to be more reflective of how we're different than a traditional CSA. Um, that's a, usually a single farmer that customers come and get food just from that farm. We, were, we you know, pioneered this idea of an aggregated box that we could pull from different farmers and have a box that more closely reflects how people actually eat, which is they don't just eat vegetables. They eat fruit, vegetables, protein, dairy. And so our box was really an industry leader in, in figuring out how to, how to curate something that now you can look at Blue Apron, they do you know, all over the country, right? So, um, but you know, the farm share program was also an enormous drain on the organization too. So even though it brought in a tremendous amount of, of revenue, it cost way more than it brought in. And so in, in farm shares and CSAs are been losing market value all across the country for a couple of years now. And we were definitely seeing that here too. It's like, this idea was great. We had a thousand members a couple of years ago. It was this huge, you know, game-changing idea. But um, the world's moved on, and we have to move on too. We can't be afraid of, of losing that revenue. But at the same time, without understanding the, the personal, the cost it was having on the organization, the people that were running the program were, we had so much turnover, people were lasting a year, maybe a year and a half because it was just too overwhelming. The pace of it was nonstop. We had it a winter program, so now it was all year long and delivering food every week to 600 families is exhausting and keeping up the communication, everything else. Um, and, and people now have lots of other options. Lots of people have mimicked what we did. There's lots of, I don't like to talk about competition being a nonprofit, but there's lots of other options. So that idea has now saturated the market. And so we're not the only ones, and so we don't have the competitive advantage. So unless we're willing to really invest and become the blue apron of you know, CSAs, and then we had to be willing to either do that and take that risk and really try to get market capitalization and dominance, and, um, or we really had to make the hard call and say, you know what, that's not really where we want to put our energy. You know, Greensgrow has um, several, and the community kitchen is another example um, that we're ending that relationship now. It was a um, 10 years old. We were the first shared use kitchen in the city. You know, we like this idea of asking forgiveness rather than permission. And so we, we got in before there were rules about shared use kitchens and spent a long, long time, many months with lawyers and L&I trying to figure out what are the rules for building a, a kitchen that other people can use. But um, really it was game changer. We helped launch 75 different small entrepreneurs and getting their businesses off the ground. One of them won Shark Tank. Um, people that have, that have gone and grown on and really become you know, self-sustaining businesses, opening storefronts all across the city. So incubating, using food as an incubator to help people live out what their dream is for what urban agriculture can mean. Um, through a space like the kitchen was was really powerful, but um, the church is moving on. The space was getting harder and harder to stain. Other people picked up the mantle. There's other kitchens in the city now, and so um, became something else that we had to say. You know what? Great idea. It's not working for us anymore. What can we do next? Greensgrow started small and humble. Mary and Tom knew that a model of just rolling up their sleeves and digging in was the best approach, even on a shoestring budget. And part of their success was not just in adapting, but innovating 
and inspiring others about what's possible. I think Mary realized very quickly, you know, they put up all these trays, they were growing lettuce uh, in that first year, right, they made $5,000. Um, the second year, I think they made closer to 30, and it was just her and Tom, and I think they realized quite quickly that this wasn't going to be the, the wonderful economic idea that they thought it wasn't going to, you know, pay for their 401k. Um, realized quite quickly and then became a nonprofit two years later, right? So in 1999, became a nonprofit. I think because someone just offered her some money and was like, well, you need, you need nonprofit status. She's like, okay, I'll create a nonprofit. Uh, but also realizing that it wasn't profitable and that, you know, I think starting to get the hint that the legacy of Green Scrollless Neighborhood had to be more about, more than about just lettuce. That culture of innovation and that, I think, realization that Greensboro existed not to provide a product to people, but really to provide an experience and I like to call it the confidence. A lot of I think what I think a lot about is that the barrier for people doing this work is not about technical know-how or resources. It's just confidence. It's just feeling like it's possible. And so Mary coined the idea of an idea farm, right? Farming ideas since 1997, that people come here just to feel like ideas are worth pursuing, that ideas are possible, that Growing food in the city is something that can happen. If you don't even have a yard, growing food on concrete can happen. Growing food in water on a tray can happen. Growing food on a wall can happen, right? Like um, that you can have greenery in a neighborhood, even in a neighborhood like Kensington, that it's possible and that you don't need a million dollars to do it is um, I think the idea that really took hold. And st even still today, people come here to get inspired, to feel like, hey, I can do this, right? Another great innovation from Greensgrow was born out of a blend of necessity, nature, innovation, and that adaptive spirit that Mary planted at the very beginning. And this opened up not only another revenue stream, but had potential impacts that could be felt far beyond their gates. So when I started in 2006, we had the raised beds built. We were starting to grow tomatoes and other things. We realized that this neighborhood didn't have enough green space to support a pollinator community. And so if we wanted to grow tomatoes, then we needed to actually bring in our own pollinators. And so we started with one beehive, and now I think we have 12. Um, and um, it kept growing with the farm as we were growing more food and then bringing in all the flowers from the nursery. We started having uh, more beehives, and then the honey we're producing became, is still our most popular product, sells out in a weekend, you know, when we can harvest it. And, um, but, you know, this idea of a symbiotic relationship that's happening. And then there was some interesting data when colony collapse became a big thing that urban bees tended to have a higher survivability rate. They didn't seem to be as affected by colony collapse as their suburban counterparts. And, you know, I think the, they're still learning about all the different factors that contribute to that, but part of it is, um, environmental toxins from landscape sprays and all types of uh, agricultural chemicals um, being one of the things that weakens the bees' immune systems. And we think about cities, especially a neighborhood like this, right? We're on a brownfield site, it's being toxic to humans, but it's a different type of toxicity to bees. And so their exposure pathways are different. And so we started noticing, and beekeepers started noticing that um, our bees and other bees in the city were healthier. And so actually there were some beekeepers in the country that started bringing their bees for summer vacations in Philly. And so they actually, they would truck their bees in for the growing season, then bring them back out to the country for the winter. They would do that year over year um, um, to, to, to be an insulator, right, from those, from those um, exposures. Um, and our beekeeper of the last couple of years started noticing a couple of things. He always like liked our bees. We have a, we use a, we trade a CSA share to Don Shump, who runs Philadelphia Bee Company. 
so Don um, was doing the same thing. He started bringing more and more bees here, and he keeps bees all over the city now. He has bees at different community gardens and other places, and rooftops at a hotel and at a candy shop and all kinds of things. But started noticing, especially our bees were doing really well. He was seeing in some places 30, 40% of the bees die off every winter, but greens growers seemed to you know, only have a 10% die off rate. It wasn't getting as much honey, but um, when they would do mite counts, they would have mites, but they seemed to be healthy. The mite counts were stable. The mites weren't getting a toehold. And so he started doing more experiments and bringing more hives here, separating more queens. And, and then this year actually took all our bees to Georgia to, to give them a little bit of a head start in the season in the spring to start um, actually breeding what he's, what he's calling the Kensington bee, which he thinks is a new genetic strain. This city, Philadelphia, was built on ideas rooted deep in our human nature. Community, service, ingenuity. This, once the capital of our vast nation, was even the birthplace of our core mission statement, the Declaration of Independence. Those concepts, those ideals, are baked into who we are as a society, and their resonance rings through Greensgrove in ways big and small. It's the fundamental questions of showing someone a ripe tomato on a vine and triggering that little flash in their the back of their eye and that DNA of saying, this is important, and that maybe not even knowing why, um, but being drawn to it and then figuring out, okay, how can we take that spark and nurture it into a flame and see where it goes out into the world. This idea that Philadelphia is a place where if you have an idea, you can, you can put it in motion and um, see it come to something, but also there's a, there's a desperation and a need and a, and, a, and a willingness to try something different because it's clear that the things that were tried before weren't, aren't working. Um, and um, so I, I love that combination of having a skill set and a, a tool like farming that can touch everybody, that can be done without a lot of initial capital. Um, a seed is cheap. And, but can have such a profound impact from, as I was saying earlier, from changing a whole neighborhood, creating jobs, creating green space, and changing the, the environment to create a new species of bee, to improve people's mental health by walking by a flowering plant you know, in the morning, to um, changing their diet and how they approach their life, what they put on the food for their families, how a kid grows up being willing to try a new thing because they've experienced something in a natural setting that's different than finding something new on your plate. Um, all these different ways that a single seed can, can really create a whole different world for people is a, is a magical thing. Thanks for listening to Scrappy. You can go to scrappypod.com to find transcripts from today's show and links to Greensgrove Farm. This time of year, they have all sorts of special events for the holidays. Be sure to make the trip and share in their extraordinary mission. Please also remember to subscribe to Scrappy wherever you get your podcast and give us a rating to let us know what you think. If you know someone who would make a great guest for our next season, go to scrappypod.com and send us a message. We'd love to hear from you.